Good evening, everybody. I had a few technical difficulties. I thought it was uh, something else, but it turned out to be my microphone again. My microphone is very, very finicky. I'm going to have to fix that at some point. Welcome to Tarkgrass Epistemology. My name is Travis Shaddix. We are here to find out how we know what we know about turfgrass science. Thank you for joining me. This actually sets the record for the most people online at the beginning of a show. Okay, we have 30-something people already on here. I love the way this is going. We're doing well. I had a good show this morning, as you all that were able to attend. It was a little, um, I got a little frustrated. <laughs> there was a video I showed that wasn't exactly uh, evidence-based information. So, um about nitrogen pricing and nitrogen costs and longevity of nitrogen products and so forth. So if you get a chance, go back and watch that. You might, um, you might um, laugh a little bit, who knows. But a question came up a couple days ago <clears throat> on an episode. And the question, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning his name. I don't see him here tonight yet. But the question was, I'm going to read it exactly, or the comment was, I am strongly considering using a year-round release FERT for a base, then spoon-feed the color and growth rate and after afterwards. And that was by Matt DeGoyer. I think he's in Utah, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And I mentioned on there, when he, and when he made that comment, is, is I think there's some evidence for that, basically. In other words, if you're going to use these slow-release nitrogen sources, you need to get way out there if you're going to compete with urea and ammonium sulfate. You can't do these little six-week, eight-week, ten-week things because financially and agro agro um, biologically or agronomically, you're so close to urea, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to just go that short length of time. So if you're going to do something like that, or you're going to go clear out and do the whole season, that might have some validity to it um, agronomically in terms of competing with the soluble ureas and ammonium sulfates. Um, but it might also have some there might be something there regarding the actual cost or the price to do a program like that. Because we showed this morning that the prices of these slow-release materials when you factor in the turfgrass response don't really compare well at all with your or ammonium sulfate when you're doing these you know, one-month, two-month products, three-month products. But if you're going to go out and you're going to go five months or four months, you're going to go the entire summer or you're going to tie the entire growing season, that might be a different matter. And I told him I wasn't, I couldn't remember a study off the top of my head, but it's, it's, I, I felt like there was one or two in the, in the literature, but I couldn't remember off the top of my head. And as soon as I shut off the, the, the show, I remembered one. And um, so what I wanted to do was show that study tonight. But as I always try to do, <laughs> if I can, I try to have the author on so I don't screw up their work, <laughs> okay? The last thing you want to do is do all that work and then have some goofball like me come on and then screw it all up on some podcast. So I've asked tonight for a guest to come on, and the guest tonight is Dr. Doug Soldat. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, Travis. Good to be here. Thank you for coming in the evening. I mean, I can only imagine your schedule is extremely packed, so. Not in the evening. Not in the evening. You're good to go in the yeah. evening. Good time. Well, you heard my little preamble. For those of you, uh, but for before we get started on that, I guess, Doug, there may be some people who are watching tonight who might not know who you are. Do you want to kind of just give a once over on who you are and what you're doing? Sure. Yeah, I'm Doug Soldat. I'm a turfgrass extension specialist at the University of Wisconsin. 
Um, I've been there for about 17, 18 years. I do research on soil test, um, soil test calibrations for turf grass, fertilizer responses, nutrient fate, um, irrigation needs, PGRs, all kinds of stuff like that. Perfect. I don't know if I told you or not, but I gave a talk um, in Phoenix on soil testing stuff. Um, you, there was a health situation with this previous speaker's family. So I came in and gave a talk. I don't, did I tell you what happened in the middle of that talk when a gentleman came up and wanted to uh, um, recommend a different type of soil test to the audience? I didn't tell you that. I, I mentioned I, we ran to each other briefly there. I don't, can't remember what I told you. I was in that, you're, you're soil testing person, so you might get a kick out of this. He, um, he was very polite and very respectful for the majority of the talk. I mean, it was nothing wrong at all. He asked very valid questions and made some very valid comments. But then he started to kind of make a turn, like in the middle of the talk, it was a four hour talk. So in the middle of it, he started to kind of turn a little bit and started kind of venturing out beyond like Malik's and Olson's and these things and started to kind of talk about like total nutrients total digestion of the soil and i was like what i don't know if that's what he's saying and i asked him for clarity he said well we need first of all he said we need to do we need to consider doing total nutrients not just extractable with malix or olsen's and i said okay let me understand what you're saying when you're talking to me and you're saying total nutrients i'm hearing complete liquid liquid liquefaction of every element including all the elements internally to clays and everything you know completely is that what you're saying he goes yeah and i said yeah don't do that <laughs> he was telling the audience you should do that you should do totals and i'm like no 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 <laughs> that's where i'm gonna draw the line and i didn't i don't know the gentleman's name but uh he I don't think he took too kindly to that. So come to find out he owns a soil testing company. I didn't know that when I told him. So, so that was my fun in Phoenix. It was uh, unexpected. I, he sat in the front row. I didn't realize who he was. And I guess he was trying to sell total nutrient analysis. I've only. That's, so that's funny. That's where soil testing started. Yeah. Like back in the, back in the 1800s, um, mm. early 1900s. And researchers were, you know, we could basically do pretty, pretty decent elemental analysis by then. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I said, oh, let's just look at the nutrients in the soil. Yeah. So I looked at them all and they found, look, there's no relation to the total amount of nutrients in plant growth. So they said soil testing is worthless. Yeah. And then, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, the concept of labile nutrients and available nutrients pops up. And that's kind of the, the formation of, modern soil testing yeah it is kind of crazy to think about how far we have come considering it was, it was the 1800s i don't think it was in the 1700s i think it was the 1800s where they didn't even know how the plants were gaining mass you know they thought they were eating the soil literally they thought they were digesting the soil particles and so forth and, and the famous tree experiment where they weighed all the soil and all this stuff i think that was in the 1800s i think and we went from there to where we are now which is nowhere near where I think we need to be in order to have more confidence, but at least we're making, we're making progress. And, um, but total nutrient analysis, I got a kick out of that. And I was like, mm, I don't think you know, I just, I just kind of let it slide. I'm like, no, let's not do that. Okay. Um, so regardless, that was my experience in Phoenix. That was interesting. 
So today, anyway, the, 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 the question that came up was, we, I've been talking about nitrogen for the last couple, week, I guess. And a lot of people want to know about soluble nitrogen, slow-release nitrogen, and turf grass response to nitrogen, and all these things. And this morning, I went over one of my papers. And the previous two days, I went over one of Peter's papers. And I can't remember the first paper on Monday. But anyway, we're talking about slow-release nitrogen sources. And I, I read the question where the gentleman uh, mentioned, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, thinking about just jumping on and just doing the entire season with one application. And I have, I have actually done that before, but I never published it. And I did it with leaching, and I never published that. So I'm familiar. So to me, it doesn't count. So I'm familiar with the, the possibility of that. And then I remembered. I was like, oh, yeah, you did that study. And um, that's why you're on. I wanted to make sure that I don't mess this thing up. It's a very simple, straightforward study that you have here. And I just wanted to bring you on and, and give you an opportunity to to do the paper justice. So um, let me see if I can bring it up here without you know, turning everything off on us here. Let me see if I can get this to work. Okay, let me back, let me move this up. So the paper I'd like to go over tonight is your paper in, I don't know, even, I never even know how to pronounce this journal, Acta Horticulturae or something like that. Acta Hort is all I ever call it in 2008. And the title is Turfgrass Response to Nitrogen Sources with Varying Nitrogen Releases by yourself and um, Marty Petrovic and, and Barlow. So do you want to kind of just give us a you know 10,000 foot level sort of explanation and introduction as to how this project or even why the project was even initiated and sort of the thought process behind it and, and kind of lead us into the introduction? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so Marty Petrovic was my PhD advisor. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Cornell University, graduated there in 2007. So this paper is published in 2008. And uh, the data was collected were collected in 2003 and 2004, I think. Okay. And so I, I started, when did I start? I might have started at Cornell in 2004. Okay. Um, so I actually never saw these research plots. So that's the big, that's the big reveal here is I didn't collect any of the data, I didn't mm -hmm. design the experiment, never saw them. Um, but, uh, my advisor gave me the opportunity, said, you know, how, you're a new professor at Wisconsin publications are the currency that you get tenure by. I don't like to write anymore because I'm at, you know, I'm full professor and I, have other things that are occupying my time. So would you like to to take this these raw data and work it up into a paper? And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. So mm -hmm. um, so I did most of the writing and the data analysis, but none of the actual uh, uh, app, you know applications of the treatments or data collection. So I can't I can't share any anecdotes with what the plots looked like or anything like that. But um, yeah, I was definitely interested in the study. I've done studies like this um, at Wisconsin in the, in the years since. So, um, and yeah, I think this is definitely an interesting paper that I, I haven't thought about in a long time, but it'll be fun to talk about. Okay, good. Well, you have, the study is actually conducted on three of the four turf grass industries. It's not on sod, it's on sport, turf, lawn care, and golf. And, um, Let's just kind of get into it. It's real simple, straightforward. I'm, we're gonna. There's some tables in here, but I'm actually gonna show the, some of the data in a 
in a figure format. And there's, I think there's more to it. When I, when I read through this, the, um, the results were pretty straightforward, but, but there was a little bit more that I want to tease out or just discuss besides, you know, slow release worked basically. Okay. There's a little bit more in terms of like the practicality and I'm not, I don't have the right answers or the wrong answers. I just want to ask you your perspective on, on, um, a few things as we, when we get into the data. Um, so I'll just kind of scan through here and read through here a little bit and see where it goes. All right. So basically several different classes of slow release and controlled uh, release nitrogen fertilizers are commercially available. You write in the introduction, you talk about basically a little bit about their microbial breakdown or their, or their release. If they're not microbial breakdown, such as IBDU is not microbial, but it's a reacted and so forth. You can talk about that. Um, nitrogen release from sulfur coat fertilizers occurs as fertilizers dissolve. You basically you kind of just go through and explain sort of how the different nitrogen fertilizers release. And there's a difference between the sources. All right. And let's see, and then talk about nitrification. Now in this study, there's Uflex and Umax. And I, I had a study this morning where I just looked at Uflex. And um, in this paper, your the results in this paper are gonna be much more favorable to that th those products than what I found in South Florida. So that for those people interested in Uflex and Umax, there was one person this morning asked about Umax. Um, there's some information you know, in here by UMAX. So we're going to get to that. Nitrification inhibitors like disiandiamide have shown have shown to have little value in increasing the efficiency of infertilization in Kentucky bluegrass turf. That's what you found from, that's what Waddington found. It says to have little value. Now in this paper, we're going to find that there is some value. I, I don't know what your take is on the, you know, enhanced efficiency products like disiandiamide and, you know, Uflexes of the world, UMAXs of the world. I don't know what your take is on that, if you have one at all, but um, it seems to me like, I don't know if it's most of the literature, but a big chunk of the literature with that contains those products is not very favorable to them at all. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't say not that they wouldn't result in a response. I mean, they, they result in a response, but when I say not favorable, I mean, relative to urea, the, the gap there is not a lot. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Do you have any take on that? Do you see anything different than I do? No, that's I actually taught a class on that this morning, and that was oh. one of the conclusions. <laughs> I, had, um, I had a spy but, in your room. I was watching. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I agree completely with that statement. I don't know. I, I'd argue that maybe that we didn't, this study is missing a treatment. So we, I, I think of UMAX and UFLEX as very expensive urea. Um, what we and I was shocked at the results. I remember this when I was writing the paper that we put down four pounds of this stuff in one application. Mm -hmm. It didn't burn the turf. Mm -hmm. That's 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 the thing that's preventing me from putting four pounds of urea down at one time. Assuming that it, that's uh, that's usually more than the annual requirements. You know, it's yeah. a lot of urea. Yeah. But if we did put down four pounds of urea would we have seen the same thing? And then it would be, it basically be saying none of these slow release products worked. So all, you just you know? stole, yeah, you just stole what I was going to ask. At the end. <laughs> so that we'll get to that at the end. We'll get to that at the end, but you're very well said is that you, you applied the, well, not you, but the, the Uflex and Umaxes were applied at these high rates. Whereas urea was split 
And there's actually someone going around right now talking about differences between products and, and you can't make that comparison, but you can't say Uflex was greater than, than urea. You can say Uflex of four pounds was equivalent or whatever greater than urea one, you know, one and one and one of urea. But when you want to compare apples to apples, it has to be the same, right? You know, all that. So, um, so in this study, you're going to find that Uflex and Umax do, do a very good job at producing turf, but I agree with you completely. I'm actually interested in what you had to talk about in your class because I don't think I could have said it better than that is that I, I Uflex and Umax to me, I, don't, I shouldn't use those brand names, but any of the, the nitrification inhibitors, stabilized ureas. Yeah. I'm not picking on those two brands, but any of the stabilized ureas, at least in turf, I don't know about ag, but in turf, they're just very expensive forms of urea. And I don't mean 10 or 15% more. The cost was in that paper from this morning for those people that want to look at it. It's twice. I mean, if urea is you know, $700 a ton, these stabilized ureas can be $1,300, $1,400 a ton. And my, my argument is if I'm going to pay double, I want to have at least double in return for that, minimum double, whether it's quality magnitude or quality longevity or whatever, double customers or however you want to do it. I'm paying twice for that, twice as much for that urea. And I've, I've sold a lot of Uflex in my day, Doug, a lot of it. And I, and I feel guilty about that because I was under the impression that it was of great value. But when you get in and start looking at the literature, it just doesn't seem to provide the response that would offset the additional cost compared to urea. What, what all did you talk about in your, in your class? You talk about like just the, the effect of, of the, of the, um, component on the urea stabilization or do you talk about the turf response or both or what do you talk about yeah we talk about i show a lot of my research plot data i show bruce branham and shelby henning's data from university of illinois where they use stable isotope tracing to look at where the nitrogen went in the plant from stabilized sources and mm. unstabilized urea mm. um and we do talk about it does work in in ag and we talk about why and and we talk about why it doesn't make sense that it would work in turf and the in short the reason is the stabilized components are meant to prevent volatilization which can be controlled by watering in the fertilizer and even even in conditions where the fertilizer isn't watered in it's still uh, in most cases a rel you know, single digit percent loss mm -hmm. and then the nitrification inhibitor component which keeps keeps the ammonium in the in the pause in the ammonium form and prevents it from going to nitrate is just irrelevant because turf grass is nitrogen deficient soaks up uh nitrogen rapidly and it doesn't you know nitrogen leaching is just a usually a really uh minimal component yeah. of loss so it the two stabilizers are basically preventing problems that don't occur in turf grass but do occur in agriculture yeah well very well said yeah that's the reason i have you on I mean that that's uh, I agree. I mean that's that's what that's what I seem to pull out of the literature myself. Um, I, I was going to actually have another author on to talk about that. It was, I don't know if you saw on Twitter there was some discussion on that about Twitter and the author who was you know contributing to that conversation is not in the United States, so I'm gonna have to wait for her to come back. Um, but we're going to talk about that the stabilization products and and um, you know whether or not they're worth the cost. I just, I just haven't seen in turf. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm wrong, but I just haven't seen in turf any evidence to support the additional cost of those stabilized urea forms 
compared to urea. I just, there's so yeah. much additional. If it was five or 10 or 20%, I mean, I can make that argument maybe. When you're talking double, like, wow, that's a big, that's a big, uh, <laughs> you have to have a lot of confidence to spend that much money on something. And we sell it. I mean, there's there's people using it right now in, in lawn care and golf and so forth. And I'm like, uh, unless you have the conditions that are ideal for volatilization or denitrification, which in that case, if it's denitrification, you probably wouldn't have good turf anyway if it's saturated that much. But if it's ideal for volatilization, which could theoretically exist and still have really good turf, then maybe you could make some leap of you know mental gymnastics and make it fit somehow. But it's hard to make that leap for me. I just haven't seen enough to convince me to use it. Yeah, Ben McGraw and Max Schlossberg from Penn State have a relatively recent publication that looks at the at those things, and I okay. think they they found single digit percent increase in efficiency under extreme conditions on putting greens. Oh, really? Um, but they didn't do didn't do any economic analysis. So if you think, well, how much would you pay for let's just call it a five percent increase mm -hmm. in uptake efficiency? I think your answer should be somewhere like 5%, you know? Um, well, you know, I've had this discussion with, uh, with um, Richardson in Arkansas. He, he's like, well, why not just apply 5% more urea? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're going to lose 5% or you're going to gain 5% from that, then just add a little, just add 5% more from urea. You're going to do it, you know, you're going to get that back for much less you know, money. And um, I agree. And I'm, I'm not sure how it gets into the management practices, but somehow it does. Anyway, I'll be here forever talking about this stuff. Let's, um, let's go to the, the material or the, the objective. So while the conventional maximum single application rate of solar release nitrogen sources is, what is that, pound and a half? Um, some fertilizer manufacturers recommend a single season long application rate. Now, the funny thing is of 146, so that's three pounds, right? Three pounds at end at one shot. The funny thing is, is that when this was going on, I was in the industry actually doing this with golf course superintendents. There's one superintendent who's no longer at the course, but in central um, eastern coast of Florida, there was a golf course over there that decided to go ahead and try that. And it worked very well. We were going out at high rates with very heavily coated polymer coated ureas, and we're doing it one time on a fairway. And it worked really really well. Now, whether or not financially it made sense was another matter in terms of, you know, making all the dollars and cents add up. But, but agronomically the fairways grew in from, from divot recovery very well. It was the, the super, superintendent was very happy with it. Um, but it took a tremendous amount to convince him that this sort of concept could work. You just, you know, you have to know what you're doing with it. I mean, you know, you have to understand the, the math behind it and the science behind it. And you'll see that in this paper for the most part, they work. Anyway, it was just interesting. They just published in 2007 or eight, and that's about the time that I was over there doing that stuff. Uh, because of the many types of slow control release nitrogen fertilizers available and the widespread interest in maintaining adequate turf grass quality with fewer in applications, the objective of this study was to determine if turf grass quality could be maintained while reducing the number of applications within sources of several different release mechanisms on a variety of turf grass areas. So basically the short and skinny of it is that you had three, three locations one of them was an athletic field, a, simula a simulated athletic field situation. And you, 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 the products were applied on an actual golf course fairway and then a simulated home lawn. So that covers the majority of the turf grass industry right there. And, and if you're interested in relating it to your world, if you're listening. 
if you don't mind, I'll just kind of go through this and then I'll get to the slides and then, you know, we'll, you can kind of walk through the slides and, or I can walk through them however you want to do it. This, the athletic field study was on a, on the, uh, practice tee at a Robert Trent Jones golf course at Cornell university in Ithaca, New York. And it was on Kentucky bluegrass in the summer of 2002. There were six nitrogen release, six slow, I'm sorry, six slow release forms of nitrogen were compared against urea in a non-fertilized control. And we'll go over that. I want, I'll actually, I'll let you go over that if you want, when I get to the tables, but the six, uh, slow release forms included, um, IBD. Oh, you know what? I'll just go to the table and show that I got to go down to the bottom and I'll just show all the nitrogen sources for that particular study. Then you had a fairway study at the same location, apparently, at, in Ithaca, at the, at the same golf course. And on the, on the fairway study, you guys did it on bent grass with some annual bluegrass in there. And here's the nitrogen sources, and we'll go through that when we get to the table down below. And then the lawn study was, um, was on an unirrigated research area at the Cornell University Turf and Landscape Ornamental Research Facility in Ithaca. And that was on Kentucky bluegrass and fine fescue. So we're on a golf course where we're simulating the athletic fair area on a tee, we're on the fairway. So that, I guess that the idea was there was a little higher cut grass with some, I guess, well, you didn't really do traffic, but it was a little higher cut turf, like like the athletic field would be. And then on a fairway and then on the research center on a home lawn sort of situation. Now, what I want to do is I want to go down to the, to the tables. And then if you want to, we can just go through for this, this is for the athletic field study portion, and here's the nitrogen fertilizer sources. Do you want to walk through this and kind of, do you remember this <laughs> or has it been too long? I mean, I, I, I didn't even do it. So, I mean, I, I can do it. I can walk it, through it. But yeah, I mean, it's, so it's UMAX and UFLEX, these stabilized nitrogen sources that we've been talking about at basically four pounds twice. Yeah, that's 195. Total. That's oh. a lot of fertilizer. So this is like, this is big time athletic field. This is not your high school athletic field. This would be like, you know, Green Bay Packers type stuff. So it was four pounds per year. No, eight, right? It was 195 in June and 195. Uh, oh, oh, it's in 2003, 2004. You're right. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought that was split per season, but you're, no, you're right. Yeah. Single this, episode. this was the one part of the study that was over um, two years. And the other ones I think right. were one year studies, I think. Yeah, you're right. Okay, go ahead. Yep, so four pounds per year. So that brings it back down to earth where it's like a normal athletic field. Um, neutraline, which is a methylene urea, a nitroform, longer chain, uh, methylene urea or urea formaldehyde. Both of those are microbially uh, released. So you'd expect them to release more when during the summer when temperatures are warm. IBDU just needs water. So you'd expect that that would release consistently as long as there's even moisture throughout the year. <clears throat> and then polyon is a polymer coated urea, which should be relatively insensitive to temperature and release uh, uh, somewhat regularly over, over the, the season. And then of course, urea, which was then applied uh, four times per year at a pound per thousand. Yeah. So, so that... four, total, same total amount of nitrogen for the year. Yeah. but we had those the additional labor associated with those split apps. Yeah, so the idea is the in and this in this particular study there was no splitting or cutting of the of the slow release with some portion of of urea or ammonium sulfate or whatever. It was a straight 100% slow release material which is what you would probably need to do if you're going to go I don't know what kind of length you're shooting for but it was in May and you know so you're shooting for the entire growing season uh in in new york so i mean 
that would make sense to do that, you know, 100% slow rather than, you know, maybe trying to put a little soluble in there, like half soluble, because then, you know, anyway, make a long story short is four pounds in one shot of slow from, well, I wouldn't argue, I wouldn't say that UMAX and Uflex are slow, but neutralene, Nitroform, IBDU, and Polyon are, are certainly slow release materials. So that was the athletic field study. That was that was the, those were the materials for the athletic field study. So the the golf course fairway study used. Um, I wasn't familiar with this. I'm going to pronounce it Kingenta. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. I'm assuming. I'm I'm not exactly sure exactly what the fertilizer property identification over here is. Is when you say 50% urea with 8% polymer, you're talking about that's the percent of the polymer that was in the ton, and then. Then there was another ton made with 10% polymer. So in other words, there's two different release times, two different polymers in the same blend that release at different rates. Is that what that is? Yeah, I believe so. So the 10% polymer coating is, would be expected to have a longer release. Okay. I just want to make sure that that was the case because I haven't actually seen this outside of the industry. This is the way we would refer to occasionally to it in, in the fertilizer industry, but I I rarely see that in scientific literature. So I, I mean, it's fine. I just, Oftentimes, manufacturers don't like to release that information. <laughs> they don't want people to know exactly what the percentage was of the of the of the polymer. Anyway, um, so in this case, we're still using slow release polymer coats, and well, just walk through it. Go ahead and walk through it. I'm sorry, I'm still in your thunder here. No, yeah, same thing. So in this case, this is uh, uh, three different products from Kingenta, and you can see that they have different. Um, polymer coatings on the right there. Mm-hmm. And the first one, the 4100, was applied at three applications in 2006. And then the 4000 was applied once at three pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 34010 was applied once at three pounds. Um, and then we go down to the Polyon, which is kind of the, the United States standard product. So King Genta was an, a Chinese company that was trying to break into the to the market. And I, I don't have an update on how that went for them. Mm. Um, but Polyon, uh, polymer coated, three pounds. IBDU, again, which is a non-microbially released product, three pounds, um, one application. And then a sulfur coated urea, which was applied, you know, I would... If I could do this again, I would like to apply that at three pounds. Um, yeah. But this was split into three applications. And then the urea, though, was, was six half-pound application. Mm-hmm. So, again, fairway, bentgrass, and annual bluegrass, it's more susceptible to, to burn. So I believe that was probably the, yeah. the thought there. Yeah. So you have – so the, the, this polymer could appear as basically half, half and half, a little bit of – quicker slow if that makes sense a quicker slow release blended with a slower slow release and then you get progressively slower and slower because the the coating gets thicker and thicker with 12 percent coating at the next one and then this one looks like it's the same sort of polymer but they added in some potassium nitrate coated potassium nitrate in that one as well so that's the logic behind that you know the it's is some thin coated polymer blended with some thicker coated polymer in that particular study and then we had the, the IBDU and the SCU as well with urea okay and then the last one was the the lawn fertilizer study and we're dealing yeah, with thinner coated materials here right right and this one is uh, very very similar to the the study that we just looked at where the the 
uh, King Genta products have these progressively different coatings, which the, the theory behind that is that they're going to release at different points during the year, which will provide season long nutrition. So we have the first product that's applied at a pound per thousand three times. Mm -hmm. The second product is applied once at three pounds. Mm -hmm. Same thing for the next one, although it's got some potassium in it. Yeah. And we go down to Scott's Turf Builder, you know, just straight up does, you know, the most commonly thing done to home lawns. Yeah. Um, a Lesco sulfur coated urea. So a slow release product with a similar analysis to the Scott's Turf Builder. Mm -hmm. And then the urea, which is applied again six times at a half a pound for the same grand total of three pounds per thousand for the year. Yeah. So for those people who are in lawn care and are interested in, in the concept of one application for the entire season, when we show this graph, you're going to be wanting to look the, at the Congenta 4000 and the Congenta 34010 because these two went out at three pounds once. And in that particular study, it was the only in the lawn care study it was the only heavy one single heavy application of nitrogen. The other ones were, or split. Okay. Anything else on that? I think that's, I think that's it. Unless you have something else, I'm going to go to the graphs. Well, no, just to, if you are in the lawn care industry and you're, you're interested, you can look at the athletic field results, which actually applied more nitrogen to, you know, yeah. relatively similar grasses yeah. and a, a whole bunch new of other slow release sources. So there's, there's some, information from the athletic field portion that you could okay fair enough find value in. yeah all the yeah you know, all these were applied at four pounds one you know so they had a whole bunch of them applied. yeah and that's fair enough i mean you have the reacted ureas in there as well so okay let me see if i can flip over here and get this to let me put this in this mode and let me see if i can get this over to the graphs without breaking the whole system okay so now what I want to do, Doug, is I've taken those data. In fact, let me just show the data real quick, just so everybody's on the same page here. Um, I've taken these data that are right. If I can get to it. That are, for those people interested, that are in like, say, table four, I think it is where it starts. So these data, table four, influence of fertilizer sources and so forth on turf quality. I'm I'm taking all these data for those watching and I'm converting it into a into a figure so it's more easy to understand. But I'm not going to do that with the turf clipping. So in this whole this whole study there's quality and then there's clipping. There's quality and there's clipping and so forth, okay? For those people interested in in looking at that specifically, you can um you can do that if you want to. I'm going to show it in this format. So in for the athletic field study, I've taken those data I put it on these graphs and then I inserted a red line where the minimum quality was six. And do you want to kind of give the, the results here, Doug? Uh, yeah, what, I don't know. Or I can, I mean, what I, my, it's kind of small on my screen. So, okay. Um, well, if you wanted, I can, I can go through it. I'm, I'm going to give you kind of my, my two cents on it is that the, these, these graphs have, Oh, you can, you, did you maximize that little window on your screen? If you, put your, to find if you put your if you put your if you put your mouse over the window, there'll be a little sub little icon pop up. If you click that, it'll ma it'll maximize that window. You should see a little icon pop up in the lower right hand corner of the window when you put your mouse over it. There should be like a little maximize icon open up. Sorry, I didn't realize that you didn't I didn't tell you to do that. 
I've seen it. Go ahead. It'll, it'll it, be fine. I it's impressive that you've gone this far with, with only a little tiny window. <laughs> but yeah, usually on that on that system, if you just hover your mouse over it, there'll be a tiny little um, icon pop up in the lower right hand corner, and you click that. But I'm sorry if it doesn't work. Well, I'll, I'll, we'll make it through. Um, so the red line is the minimum acceptable limit for uh, turf quality, and this white line or grayish line is the non-treated turf grass for those watching. And so for those listening, I'm looking at two graphs for the athletic field study. One is graph is 2003 and the other graph is 2004. On the x-axis, we have months. And on the y-axis, we have turf grass quality from one to nine. So there's a flat red line at the minimum acceptable limit. And then the non-treated turf was acceptable the entire time. It, it started out just a little bit above six and it went up to six and a half or so. And then went back down towards the end of the year in 2003. In 2004, roughly speaking, it's the same thing for the non-treated turf grass, where it hovers around six and a half for the majority of the study. It was always acceptable when when nothing was applied. Now, the let's then I'm gonna now I'm gonna skip to the urea. The urea is this sort of navy blue line that starts right here in 2003. So it starts at um, in July one. It starts at around a little bit below seven. It goes up to around seven and then goes back down. So it, it hovers around seven. And in 2004, the urea-treated turf grass started a little lower, but it went up to seven and basically stayed the same quality as the as seven. It stayed around seven, the same thing as 2003. All the other nitrogen sources, which include IBDU, and for those listening, just remember, it, this includes IBDU, Nitroform, Neutraline, Polyon, Uflex, Umax, and Umax. All of those were applied at four pounds, and all of them were as good or better than the turf grass response was from urea for the entire year in 2003 and for the entire year in 2004. There was never a time where the turf grass response to any of those slow release or the um, enhanced release nitrogen sources, there was never a time where they were below the turf grass quality resulting from urea. Okay, there were many times where the turf grass quality was greater than urea particularly when it came to the reactives in 2003 with Uflex and Umax, where they stay around eight on the quality scale. Okay, and in 2004, they also, they weren't always eight, but they were, they were towards the, the upper end of the quality, the Uflex and Umax. Now, to be frank, Doug, that would shock the bejesus out of me. I would be surprised if that happened too. I wouldn't expect that to happen per se. But your point was at the beginning of the, night was you would like to see what would happen if you just put urea down there at four pounds rather than this this urea here at one pound one pound one pound and one pound right and that was one question i was going to ask you is that what would be your thoughts on that and i guess you already answered that um, but that was that was something i found curious is like wow that's one of the few studies i've seen where a uflex or a umax showed that much response relative to straight urea Granted, it was a different rates and different. It was a different regime, but it's the first time I've seen that. Any thoughts on that? It's just given me uh, inspiration to put four pounds of urea down and see what it looks like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, because I think right now, if I had to bet, I'd say it would match. It'd be right up there with Umax and Uflex because that's consistent with everything I've seen when I've done side by side trials at the same rate. So yeah. normally I'd say, no, you can't put down four pounds of urea. You're going to burn the turf. Yeah. Um, apparently it didn't burn here. So, well, I need to publish this this morning. I, I talked to the group about, um, about a study that I did with Dr. Unruh. This was back in 2000 and well, 
20 or 19, something like that. I can't remember. And there's a table. In fact, it's on the, it's on the shelf behind me. There's a table in one of Bob Carroll's books or Paul Rickey's book. I can't remember whose book it is. And it talks about the burn potential of all these different nitrogen sources. And it's actually a reference of a much older, actually two or three older documents. They just pull them out and they, they make it nice and clean in their book. And it has all the different burn potentials of these different products. Um, but the references in there are quite old and on, and I'm not, I wasn't actually convinced that they were a hundred percent valid under, hold on before you lose your, <laughs> before I lose everybody under today's proper BMPs. And what I mean by that is if you're following proper BMP management with nutrient management, i.e., you're putting something out at the right time of day and you're watering it in at the right amount of water and so forth. Um, I don't know if those burn potentials really do some of those soluble nitrogen sources justice. And so what I did was I went out and did a study with Dr. Unruh and I put out um, a different varying rates and I put out a high enough rate where I was convinced it would just completely fry the turf. And that was 10 pounds in. So I did one, I think it was one, two, one, two, four, eight, and 10 pounds or something like that. I put out 10 pounds in from milorganite too, by the way. So you can imagine those plots had very little green on them. It was just solid black. It was like thick top dressing of, of material. And we watered it in, followed BMPs. We had the right cutting height. We watered them all in, the right amount of water. Didn't see a lick of burn from 10 pounds of nitrogen. Now, for all those listening, don't go out and put out 10 pounds of nitrogen, okay? <laughs> no one's saying to do that. We were, I was trying to see at what rate we would actually burn the turf, assuming that tin would smoke it. Tin didn't do it at all. It was, didn't, didn't, didn't touch it at all. And, but, but we followed proper management practices. Had I not watered those in, had I put them out on wet grass, had I not, you know, been a good steward of best management practices, I don't know what would have happened. I suspect with ammonium sulfate or something like that, we probably would have seen some, some kill, you know, from, from 10 pounds of nitrogen from ammonium sulfate, but I didn't see any burn. I, ha I have all those data. I haven't published it yet. I need to get on that. Anyway, what I'm, what I'm getting at is you were talking about putting out four pounds in, whoops, you're talking about putting out four pounds in to, to see what you wouldn't do that because you might burn it. Well, I think if you water it in and follow BMPs, you know, you might be okay. Obviously you're okay with here with the, the Uflex and the urea. I mean, the Uflex and the Umax, you know, so it's interesting to see what happens. Right. So then the question would be, what's the point of slow release fertilizers, if that's possible? That was basically the entire summation. You're, you're good at summing things up. That was the summation of my entire talk this morning, basically. At, at the end of the talk, people were saying, well, why should we buy any slow release? And my argument to include slow release, and, and you know, you're, you're, you know, better at this than I am. So let's see what you, you know, see if you have a, you know, difference of opinion. That's fine. Here's my argument to include slow release. It's not due to cost and it's not due to uh, environmental risk per se. It's not due to turf grass risk per se. Okay. It is, if you don't know what you're doing, if you have a new employee who doesn't know how to open the hopper, doesn't know how to close it, doesn't know how to weigh things out, doesn't know the importance of proper applications, doesn't know the importance of making sure it's irrigating, all those things. They don't know what they're doing. The buffer is greater with slow release materials. In other words, the room for error is greater. If they go out there and they dump the bag all over the concrete, 
it's easier to clean that stuff up than if it, you know, solubilized and started washing down the drain or dumped it on the lawn. They can get it up before it starts melting down if it was soluble. So my take on slow release is I think there is value in it, but primarily as a safety buffer with people who don't know what they're doing. What what is your take on that? Yeah, I can buy that. I <clears throat> I think my my bias would be I'd like to see more environmental data on leaching and things like that because I worry that the plant really can't take up four pounds of nitrogen the way it can a half a pound. And if you do get some uh, high high rainfall events, that uh, my guess is you would see increased uh, negative environmental impacts in some situations. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think both of those, uh, what you said and and my explanation are are valid reasons to. Yeah, we're going to get into leaching. Yeah, we're going to get into leaching, and clearly the slow releases greatly reduce the risk of that for sure. There's no question about that. You know, for example, if I'm if I'm a if I'm a uh, lawn care operator in Central Florida, and I'm not paying attention to the weather, and I'm just going out and I'm putting out. You know, the BMP, man, follow the label, follow the law, and I'm doing everything right. Putting it out, putting it out, putting it out, and not paying attention. And all of a sudden, I look on the weather, and it's like, oh, there's a hurricane coming next week. I didn't realize it. It's seven days out, and it's going to dump eight inches of water, and I just put out a pound of in. In those cases, I would argue that the higher rates of slow release would greatly reduce the potential for nutrient loss relative to soluble nitrogen sources. However, if there is no hurricane, you see what I'm saying? If there is no hurricane, if there is no um, unknown force that really pushes that nutrient through the soil, then the solubles are probably fine if they're applied at the proper BMP rate. But it's that buffer, it's that safety buffer that you get with slow releases where it's the, oh, whoops, what happened? I messed up. Well, I think the slow release have some value in that regard. I don't know. I don't know if you have a different opinion or not, but that would be my take on it. But this idea that you can just, you, you spend a lot of money on slow release, so you're going to get a lot in return for it in terms of turf response. I would say there's there's not a whole lot of meat on that bone because you can see right here, the urea was perfectly acceptable the entire time. In this case, unfortunately, the turf was completely acceptable even with, with no nitrogen. But the, the turf from urea was, I'm looking at this right here, the turf from urea was seven. You're just splitting it, you know, splitting the application. So... I think, I think you're right. If you went out at a higher rate, you'd still be fine. Let's go to the next one. Fairway quality. So same thing here. Red line is minimum. This grayish line is the non-treated control. And, you know, sometimes we do studies and it's not the greatest location, to be frank. Sometimes we do studies and it's a home run. In these locations where we're looking at nitrogen responses, you see a really good response here. But it'd be nice if the non-treated turf grass was unacceptable. It doesn't always work out that way in research. It just... It's just the way it is. But this not when you don't treat turf at all with any nitrogen, the turf grass was still around a seven on this fairway study. And when you apply all these polymer coats compared to the split application of urea, you see them basically it's all the same, roughly. There's a little bit of separation here. Statistically, at the end, you can pull out from those tables. You can see some separations out here where there's a little bit of reduction here from the, from the urea. But for the most part, they're all very acceptable. They're all very comparable to urea, meaning that you, in this case, you could go out at a high rate. I think this was what three pounds from these. I can't remember the rates here, but there was, you know, a long term long term response from these heavier rated 
applications of polymer-coated urea. They compared favorably. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Anything else on that one? You're, no, you're, you're I, I can't still looking say at that. a you're looking at a screen that's this big still, right? I'm I'm, I'm sorry. No, should... but I do. So I did the the Robert Trent Jones Golf Course where this work was conducted is adjacent to the Cornell University Research Station. Okay. And I did nitrogen work that we're not talking about today uh, on those same soils and was absolutely frustrated by this too. Like trying to see a nitrogen response when the controls look awesome. Um, that's just how the soils were in in that part. Yeah. Of the world um not everywhere but that's where the station was yeah. um not much you can do about it i got uh, oj nor in university of wisconsin i got sections of my research farm that i've learned to never do a study on because there's too much organic matter the nitrogen response is not good so yeah yeah it's like you know when my wife does work on dental patients i mean she can't see a response to a drug if the patient doesn't have the disease you know so it's kind of the same thing here it's like you can still, I, I, I would still argue that in, even in this graph, I mean, you still see a good response. I mean, this gap here is from, you know, that's what you'd see from applying it. The, the, the single application of slow release, you see this gap here that is of an increase. You see the, an increase from non-treated. Um, but it's always nice when you get ideal situations, ideal conditions in the gray line, the untreated, the non-treated's way down here. That'd be ideal. But yeah, it doesn't happen sometimes. What are you going to do? Okay, and the lawn quality, roughly the same thing. Okay, the, the non-treated turf grass was a seven across the board. The urea was a seven or an eight across the board, and all these nitrogen sources applied, whether it was applied as urea or whether it was applied as a slow-release polymer coat or the sulfur coat, um, they all resulted in sevens across the board, basically, from the lawn quality. So the short and skinny of it is, it, you know, could you apply, correctly apply, a slow release material and and expect to see you know acceptable turf grass for a prolonged period for the basically the entire season the potential is there basically that's what i'm getting from this doug unless you feel differently nope exactly and i've seen similar results in trials that i haven't published that uh, suggest the same thing from here in wisconsin yeah I'm not going to go into the clipping yield stuff unless you unless you want to. I'll go into the clipping yield stuff. It just talks basically. I, th I think can we pull out anything about like scalping from the clipping yield information? There wasn't a whole lot of differences from any of this stuff. So if you want to, I can. No, I guess that would be my concern. Is like you know, it's not all about quality. If I'm going to put down four pounds of Umax and my clippings go just absolutely through the roof, and I got to mow twice as often, that's yeah. going to be a problem. So maybe if we just scan to one of the. Here we go. Can you see so? I don't know if you can see this yeah. or not, but no, go ahead. <clears throat> if you can read it, go ahead. If you can't, then I'll try to read it for you. Yeah, I can see it. So Umax, Uflex, clipping yields mm -hmm. um, are often statistically similar to the other ones. So I, I agree, yeah. Travis. There's just not a lot here. There's Yeah, you don't see these high spikes in clipping yields where... And I get that a lot. I, I do. I just don't see it a lot in our research. I, I mean, do, have we seen scalping? Of course, we've seen some scalping here and there. But we're putting out four pounds of nitrogen as Umax and Uflex. And the clipping yields in 2003 are the same as applying the, the, the urea. In other words, like the urea split applications compared to Uflex split applications I'm sorry, compared to Uflex one application or Umax one application 
or compared to the natriform or poly on single applications. We just don't see this massive flush of growth that would result in some sort of, you know, unacceptable scalping of the turf grass. We haven't seen that, at least not in this study. Yeah. Caveat there is I think these applications are made in May and the data yeah. collection starts in July. So there's, there's well, two, you got two a two month, month window, window there, there where yeah. something might have happened could that have. we didn't didn't record. Okay. Good point. Yeah, that's definitely possible. That could have happened. Same thing. Let's look at you know the the, the clipping yield for the fairway. For those listening, they're you know, in June one, they're all A's, and then when you get to the control, in other words, all the nitrogen sources increase clipping yields compared to not non treated turf grass. From June, July, August, there's some separation in September, and then it goes back basically. Well, no, there's some separation in September and October. Um, I guess that was from the the heavily coated congenta. Oh, is that the heavily coated one? No, that would be the medium coated congenta one. So there was some separation at the very end, but very little. And actually, nothing differed from urea. Uh, the, the, uh, the 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 clipping yields from urea were fa- were comparable to the clipping yields from conge- no I shouldn't say nothing differed from from urea there was one or two that were lower than urea but it was at the very end and for the most part everything was very consistent and uniform I mean until September October there was a little bit of separation there from one or two of the treatments this is probably just a result of the weather you know and the seasons changing and the grass starting to grow in September relative to say June or July. I don't know. You don't see that in the clipping yields, though. And then the last one, and we'll wrap this thing up, is clipping yields for the lawn care. Roughly the same thing. All the nitrogen sources increase the clipping yields relative to non-treated turf in June, July, June, June 1, the end of June, the end of July. And there started to be some separation in August and September. I don't see... Not a lot, though. Yeah, there's not a lot. There may be a statistical separation between nitrogen sources, but biologically you're talking, you're splitting hairs here a little bit, you know. You, it's a, not a practical difference. Yeah. 18.1 to 17.5 grams per square meter. I mean, you know, that was from precision. Whoever took those data was very precise because that little gap there to be able to see a difference means they did something right when they were collecting it. Okay. Uh, So the conclusions, let's just read the conclusions and... We're out of here. The conclusions, according to the data collected from these three different turf grass management scenarios, applying urea periodically under these set of conditions did not result in greater turf grass growth or visual quality than applying slow-release nitrogen sources less frequently. Although small differences were observed among slow and control-release nitrogen sources, no one particular source stood out as being superior in terms of quality or clipping gun. And that's what I wanted to mention. And that's the reason I highlighted it is that oftentimes we start, I think that the, I think the consumer sometimes gets caught in this, uh, mental, you know, challenge of like, well, which one of these slow releases is what I need? Which one do I need to go with? Which one's going to give them the most response? Many times we don't even see differences between that and soluble. So the differences between these slow-release nitrogen sources is even less commonly observed sometimes, oftentimes. So what I talked about this morning, Doug, and you may have a different opinion, is that the slow-release nitrogen sources among those, if we price it on a per pound of nitrogen basis, whatever the cost is per pound of nitrogen, that's what I would start with in terms of your selection criteria if you're going to use slow-release material. 
whatever the cost is per pound of nitrogen. Start with that. And if you choose to move away from that, have a good reason for it. And if the reason is, well, I'm going to get extended release or extended long turf response or whatever, there's not a whole lot there from what I see anyway, Doug, unless you see something different. Let me know. Nope. You can um, fly up to Wisconsin and teach my class for me, Travis, because that's basically what I, what I, how I present it too. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it just, and there's not a whole lot of stuff in the literature, not a lot of information in the literature about cost. And the one this morning we talked about had cost in there and there's wide differences in costs, no question. But the, the, the differences in turf response are, I mean, they're tiny. I mean, occasionally you're going to see one separate out. Occasionally you'll see this or occasionally you'll see that. But when you look at across the board, there's just not a lot to basic. Uh, not, there's not a lot to be very, very confident about, I, I would say. So to me, I would start, usually it's sulfur-coated urea. So I would start with sulfur-coated urea because it tends to be the least expensive per pound of N. And then if you, like I said, if you go, well, what about Uflex or what about Umex? Okay, my question is, okay, why? You know, how do you know that that's the, that's the not slower, no, I wouldn't argue that as a slow release. How do you, let's say uh, polymer coat. How do you know that's the product for you, for your situation? You know, it's going to be more expensive. So <clears throat> I haven't yet seen a polymer coat that's less expensive than sulfur coat. Maybe it exists, but I haven't seen it yet. So if you're going to spend that much more money, you better expect that much more in return. So how, how do you know you're going to get that much more in return? And if you look in the literature, you're going to be there for a long time before you find anything to support that. That's my, that's my take on it anyway. Um, yep. Those polycoats um, are getting banned in Europe too because of the concern over microplastics in the environment. I'm glad you so, mentioned that. I'm really glad you mentioned um, that. They might, that, that might come to the U.S. at some point too. We'll be back to where we started with sulfur-coated urea as our main coated source. So I don't want to say anything too controversial with Dr. Soldat on here. I don't want to, you know, this isn't this isn't reflective of him. I don't want anybody to get in trouble here unless it's me. Is that we have to remember we are spreading plastics in our environment when we spread polymer coats urea. That's just the way it is. And the, the amount that you're, you're spreading, all you got to do is go to Silicon Alabama and look at that tank, the monomer tanks that they have there when they're making the, the polymer coats. And there's massive tank tanker trucks coming in and filling those 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 uh, vats up. And all you got to do is say, what's the tonnage? That much tonnage of plastics you're spreading in the environment. And I just don't. I've said it. I think I said it before on another another um, podcast. Is that I think in my lifetime they will they will no longer be allowed in the United States. Before I die, I think that's going to be the case. And then there's a whole uh, um, industry right now building up about how to find a replacement for that, a biodegradable coating that would produce a similar turf grass response um, as these polymer coats and yet degrade, you know, in the soil. There's a whole, there's a whole, you know, industry there that's, that's starting to kind of gain momentum. And, and I wish them luck because the reality is, I don't know about the deleterious effects of these plastics in our environment. I'm not a scientist in that regard, but the reality is we are doing that. You know, sorry if that's, news to anybody but it's, it's the reality we're in uh okay the last thing three the three components of this study found i'm sorry the three components of this study found very few differences among variation of various slow release products with respect to clipping production so there was very little difference between these nitrogen sources and clipping production furthermore the slow release products had statistically similar clipping yields as intermittently applied urea 
This, these results suggest that turfgrass managers can choose several slow or control release fertilizers that can be used to reduce labor associated with making many applications of fast release fertilizers during the year while maintaining good turfgrass quality and growth. However, the impact of season-long single applica high application rates of slow release nitrogen sources on the extent of nitrogen leaching has not yet been determined. Now, I did that in Fort Lauderdale, never published it. And there is a fine line between the rate needed to maintain that turf quality. And I mean a fine line like a cliff. There's a line where, you know, if you put out four or five pounds of in from like a 41 polyon or a, a, a fairway grade 41, which is really heavily coated, you can get the turf grass to respond very favorably for a prolonged period of time. But if you go a little bit more, and but you, you can do that with essentially background levels of nitrogen, okay? You go a little bit more, it just starts flushing the nitrogen through the system. I mean, it really starts, you really, you really start, it doesn't take long to reach that limit to where it's just too much and it just starts flushing through the system quickly. So it can be done. I'm not suggesting anybody go out and go start throwing all this stuff out at high rates because there is an environmental consequence if you go over that line and it, and it's pretty severe. It does. It's not like, Oh, it went from, you know, 0.5 parts per million nitrate to one. It goes from like 0.5 to 50. I mean, it goes up quick. I mean, you just go a little bit over that line. So um, I would recommend to people who are listening to this or watching this, don't go out and just think you can start throwing all the stuff out willy-nilly and not have environmental consequences without, without understanding the rate and the product that you're applying. It needs to be the right product at the right rate at the right time of year. And in this study, they found that that rate was generally three to four pounds using these polymer coats. Actually, these polymer coats aren't even available. I think the, the polyon obviously is, but... Um, but please be careful what you're doing because we this 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 study did not look at the environmental leaching component. We will look into that a little bit more as the podcast continues in the, on another episode, but not tonight. Doug, I feel like I took over the entire thing because you, I, I felt like you couldn't read your screen. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> Full service podcast there. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on and in in you know kind of giving me a once over and filling me in on how that study was done and why it was done and so forth. I appreciate it. appreciate your time. Yep. Anything? Happy to do it, Travis. I don't want to take too much of your time. It's already 10, 15. Is there anything else before we go? No, I'm good. Okay. All right. Thanks, well, you, thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, we had, this is the most we've ever had. This is, I think it's up to 40 something. So it's all, it's all because of you. <laughs> and I didn't tell anybody we were coming on. I didn't say anything to anybody about you coming on tonight. And, um, so this, as soon as they hear that you're on, because there's, there's a lot of requests for you, believe it or not. There's a lot of people say, hey, when can you get Dr. Soldat back on? And um, so it's it's 100% because of because you're here tonight. People people kept coming on and staying on. So you stay on just a little bit longer. I'm going to hang up and I'll come right back to you. Okay, Dr. Soldat. Guys Sounds and good. gals, thanks for, thanks for attending. Thanks for listening. And um, I'll be back on on Monday morning at 10 a.m. We're going to continue the nitrogen uh, topic, and we'll see you all then. Until then, be kind. Thank you. Bye-bye.